So before I go into my talk, I um, have some questions for you. How many people here regularly go out into nature? Well, pretty much most people. How many people meditate out in nature? How many, how many of you see your time out in nature as part of your spiritual practice? Okay. So a lot more people see their time in nature as part of their spiritual practice and actually meditate. And for a lot of people, being outside, whatever we're doing in nature is the meditation itself. It doesn't have to be sitting formally crossing our legs. I like, to, I like to ask that question because many people I meet, especially since I've been talking a lot about this theme this last few months, um, come up to me and say, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors, walking, hiking, camping, kayaking, whatever it is. And it's in the Sort of tell me about how nourishing and profound it is. What it's that for many people, it's the access to the sacred, to the mystery, to beauty, to wonder, to joy, to tranquility, um, but particularly to the sacred, to that which is vaster than ourselves or our ordinary mind. Um, it's a place that um, a lot of people, f- I know in, in, in studies that I've read, that um, I think being out in nature is the place that re- reports the highest for people having experiences of God, however we define God or the, the mystical or the sacred. Which is very interesting since most of our meditation practice and our prayer practice and our devotion practice happens indoors, <laughs> in buildings, in temples, and monasteries, and trailers, <laughs> glorified ones. But it was nice tonight having the rain coming into the hall, as it were, into the sound, into our bodies. So how, um, how was the, uh, having the sounds, having the listening meditation as part of your meditation, how was that? Yeah? It reminded me of when I lived in Venezuela and we were in the rainforest in the mm. Amazon. Mm. Mm-hmm. Peaceful. Peaceful. Uh-huh. Yes. You know, I really loved it. I was just listening to the sounds and and I found it easy to do that. And when they stopped, I just dropped in. It was just amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And I you know, typically when I meditate my mind is, yeah, yeah, and I'm bringing 
it back to the breath, and I have, you know, just many, many cycles of that before I get any drop at all. Mm -hmm. So that was just, it was really amazing. Yeah. Did people hear that at the back? Yeah, so it can drop us in, can make us feel peaceful. What else? What else do you notice? Yeah. It's funny, I, I found that it was calming after a few minutes, but initially it was very loud. I mean, it almost felt like noises from the city. I think when I meditate, I generally try to find a quiet place where if I pick out pieces of nature, it's very quiet. You're sort of, you're getting ultra-sensitive to noise and picking out little things. Mm-hmm. What happened? And then I think I had more of a first experience where mm -hmm. the bonding started, it felt like it was resonating with the, with the noises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, it brought me back to being a child again and the childlike wonder of nature and growing up in Montana really close to Glacier Park. I, as a child, was, you know, around a lot of those sounds. So, and as a child, we, I, Yeah. Nice. So, touching a sense of wonder, that childlike curiosity that we have as kids, the wonder of the natural world. I think for many of us, nature is the place that we escape to as kids, or found a refuge, or sanity, or sanctuary, or just some relief from the dysfunction, <laughs> touching something a little more harmonious and and peaceful. Yeah, yeah. Um, each each sound brought a certain memory from, from either being in, a, in Costa Rica or being on the East Coast, or and every sound reminded me of a different place I had been and brought that visualization mm -hmm. of that memory back. To mm -hmm. So bringing a lot of associations of time you spent in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It made me feel very happy. Happy. One of my most self-smiling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it you think that brings the joy? Because it's very common. I mean, I find myself smiling, just find myself, my, I sit more upright and then just more delighted. What, 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 do you, what do you have any thoughts about that? Tuning into something that's just naturally delightful. And I think that's true. I think that we experience a lot of delight in nature. It's hard to be present and attentive and not, at times, or a lot of the time, be filled with delight because we live in a pretty delightful planet. You know, especially right now, it's spring. Blossoms everywhere. I was, I was, uh, where was I? Oh, I was in San Jose last week, and I was on a retreat, 
in a, in a Holiday Inn hotel in between two freeways um, was not delightful. <laughs> and we had the, the, this retreat in two rooms that didn't have any windows in them. It was my idea of uh, hell. <laughs> so I escaped one afternoon to try and find some nature and I uh, found this sort of urban park and there was, it used to be, I could tell it was, used to be orchards before they built on it. And there was one very mature cherry blossom tree, full glory, full bloom, just glorious. Uh, in thousands, tens of thousands of flower petals, uh, flowers, flower heads on this tree. And it just brings delight to the soul to see that beauty, that abundance, that carefree extravagance and voluptuousness and wildness, beauty. So, delight. Other things? Let me see if hear from somebody who hasn't spoken. Yeah. I think the reason it made me feel so happy is it was so absorbing and you didn't have to flail around with your own soul or worry about you know, <laughs> what was uncomfortable in your body or was your mind wandering. It was just 100% absorbing. And that instruction to listen with your body, if I felt even remotely unattached, like I was going to drift away from it, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's so one of the things that I explored a lot as I was writing the book was that capacity or that quality that or that experience that happens when we go out into nature, it, um, it engages our attention. It brings us out of ourselves, brings us out of our dramas and our plans and our worries and our preoccupations, usually about me or you or me, you know, me, oneself. And it pulls us out into delight, into presence. We get present quite effortlessly just like the sounds that pulls us out of our tumble dryer of thoughts into just a simple connected presence. So in that way, it's a wonderful support for meditation practice. on On the path we're cultivating presence, we're cultivating awareness, mindfulness, attention. And we can use our our time in nature as a support for that, as a a conscious time of cultivating presence, but in a way that's that's different than in our meditation practice where so often what comes in is striving, efforting, struggling, fighting with our mind, fighting with the discomfort in our bodies, and the usual tug of war that often goes on when we sit. When we're outdoors, it's often a little more effortless because there's some delight, there's some allurement from beauty, from diversity, from mystery. So um, it points to an important quality that um, some teachers speak of, particularly uh, from the Thai forest tradition, which Jack was trained in and some others here, Spirit Rock, 
and particularly Ajahn Buddhadasa, who uh, was one of the great Thai meditation masters, who was a, a Thai forest monk, set up his forest in the southern forests of Thailand when they had a lot of forest and jungle, and called his monastery Wat Swan Mok, the Garden of Liberation. And he very consciously uh, saw that nature was a great teacher and a great place to practice, and so set his monastery in the, in the jungle, had people meditate out in the jungle, had people live out in the jungle. And he talked about this quality called natural samadhi. Samadhi is one of the qualities that develops through meditation. It's a, it's a way that in meditation we gather the forces of the mind, not through will, not through efforting, but through it's a natural cultivation of presence and attention to the present moment. He talked about that quality developing quite naturally out in nature, natural samadhi. So uh, we can we can use that as a um, as a as a, like a key or as a doorway to how we can cultivate this presence, this attention in our meditation practice, in our lives, without that sense of strain or struggle that we can often get into when we practice. That it's possible to touch into a more natural, graceful, easeful presence. You know, when those sounds were playing, you probably didn't need to make that much effort to be attentive. You know, at some point the mind meanders, as it will, and you gently bring it back, and the mind meanders, and you bring it back. But there's a certain ease, I imagine, many of you touched. Which is contra to the idea that the mind often has, you know, when we think about concentration in, in our culture, it, it's often associated with will, with a certain forcing, a certain, deter- a certain determination that's kind of tight and, and rigid. But that quality of natural samadhi or that's relaxed, a relaxed presence is, um, is sort of a foundation for spiritual practice because without that presence, we can't penetrate into the truth of what's true in the moment. Try looking at the truth when you're, you know, running late for a really important business meeting. You know, forget it. You're anxious, you're worried, you're planning, you're, how do I get there, I'm late, what are they going to think about me? Da, da, da. There's, no, there's no opportunity for, for depth in that moment. All the other moments we get anxious, we're caught up in our to-do list and our worries and our, and our foibles or whatever. So, as I was writing the book, I, um, I began to explore this relationship between how Nature supports our practice if we use it in a, in a conscious way by going out and allowing this presence to be naturally developed. And at the same time, uh, meditation practice, that the training that we, that we undergo through meditation, through learning how to be present, to be not so lost in our dreams and fantasies, but actually really connect with what's, what's, what's here in the moment, when we go out into nature with that quality of training and attention, the, the experience of being out in nature is, is much more profound, much more intimate, much more beautiful, because we're present. 
I'm sort of stating the obvious and um, sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. So I want to read a story um, that that just gives a little taste of um, what happens when we go out into nature with some quality of presence. As opposed to when we go out and we're just spacing out and thinking a lot and not really connecting. My friend and colleague Catherine told me about an experience she had while meditating in the foothills of the French Pyrenees. She said, while doing a standing meditation with my eyes closed in the forest, I noticed a tickle on my face. It traveled repeatedly from my mouth to my right eye and back again over a period of about 10 minutes. Trying to practice non-reactivity, I breathed patiently, sensing many light legs busily walking back and forwards across my face. After some time, a new strange sensation appeared on my mouth like it was being covered. Curiosity got the better of me, and I opened my eyes. This is a very, Catherine's a very good meditator. (laughs) It took a lot of years to to hang out with, with this experience. And she says, A small spider had woven a delicate web over my mouth and secured its gossamer thread on an eyelash. I felt an exquisite intimacy with this being. I felt touched of being considered a part of nature, suitable to make a home on. And yet at the same time, I knew I would shatter its home and our intimacy when I opened my mouth. What intimacy, delicacy, and destruction. The touch of grace as delicate as a spider's thread. So I love that story because it speaks to that quality of sensitivity and and depth that can happen when we bring that meditative presence to being out in nature. We may not have a spider making a web over our face (laughs) every day, but we can be touched similarly in in many, many, many ways. Uh, And that's, I think, one of the most beautiful things about the natural world is it's when when we're awake that it just offers endless, endless, infinite varieties to be touched, to be moved, to be woken up out of our complacency and um, dullness and thinking that we know what this hike is or what this path that we've walked every day for the last few years. I went walking in Muir Woods today, which I love to do uh, when it rains, uh, it's my favorite time to go. It's misty and wet and muddy, and there's very few people go when it's pouring with rain like today. So it's this certain quiet stillness that pervades the woods. And um, it was interesting. It was you know, and I think this is another thing that I find interesting about being out in nature is sometimes. Sometimes it can, just like in practice, in meditation practice, it can take a while to get present. Like I got there and uh, I wasn't feeling very well and started walking. And um, Nature's a wonderful mirror. It really tells us where we are. So I knew that I wasn't that present because I wasn't really connected. I wasn't that inspired. I wasn't that, 
I wasn't finding it that interesting, even though it's, I love to be there. And I just know, oh, it's not about the woods, it's about my state of mind. And so I took, you know, I took a longer walk and went up some narrow trails and um, slowly the, it's like the woods began to reveal themselves as I began to wake up, woke up. And began to be touched by the water and the moss and the rain and the mist and the, the silence of the trees and So it's it's so I, I really appreciate that quality of how it mirrors back to us where we are, who we are. And as I was taking that walk, I was I was thinking about the subtitle of my book. The subtitle is "Mindfulness in Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery." And unlike the title that that the a local bookstore gave me recently, which. They, they called it Mindless in Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery. <laughs> you know, I could see that, you know, you lose your mind when you're outdoors. That's, um, there's a place for that book. That may be the second book. <laughs> lose your mind. So I was thinking about the title, Mindfulness in Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery. And I was thinking, hmm, I don't like that so much anymore. Of course, it's too late to change it. And then I thought, well, maybe I do like it. Maybe, because when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, hmm, self-discovery, it sounds like it's being out in nature to understand who we are. Like, it felt too introspective. And then I began to sort of dwell on the, on the, on the play of the words, self-discovery, because in my experience when I was on that walk today, as it is in many times when I'm outdoors, is I understand that the self that I take myself to be, this thing called Mark with a body and seeming to have limitations and boundaries and a sense of separation and a sense of distance from the world, is actually not really true. As the more, the longer I walk today, the more I began to sense myself as everything, as the woods and the rain and the mist, and that the trees and I were breathing together, that we were just living, breathing organisms that's part of the surface of the earth, that I'm not separate, that the self-discovery that happens in nature is understanding that the nature of who we are isn't this limited, isolated, separate, fixed thing, we're as fluid and as mutable and changeable as the seasons and the weather and the rain and the, and the mist. This is from the Buddha. The Buddha was a um, group as a prince, but once he left the palace, spent the next, I don't know, 60 years of his life meditating in the forest, teaching in the forest, wandering around in the plains in the forest in northern India, and really was a forest-dwelling monk as was his uh, retinue of disciples 
And so, so much of the Buddha's teaching has reference to the natural world if you read the texts. He said, I resort to the forest as one of the noble ones, possessed of wisdom. I found great solace dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort there. I see there a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and because I have compassion for future generations. And then he says, the saying which he says at a lot of his, uh, the end of his teachings, he says, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. There are trees and the roots of trees. Go meditate there. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. So I love that. He gives a teaching, and then he says, there's the forest. There are trees and the roots of trees. Go find one, sit under it, meditate. He doesn't say go to your room, <laughs> shut the door, <laughs> turn the light on. He says, go to the forest and meditate. And I love the image of, you know, sometimes in the suttas they give these little vignettes of the monks and nuns practicing out in the forest, either in the daytime or often at night. They would meditate through the night during the the full moon and the new moon, the quarter moon. And um, there's a story, one of my favorite images of when King, I think it was King Bimbasara, is looking for the Buddha in, in the forest, and it's, it's dark, and there's a new moon, and he's going through, and he's wondering where the monks are, because it's so quiet, and he stumbles across this clearing where there's the Buddha and hundreds and hundreds of monks and nuns meditating through the night, complete silence and stillness. So clearly the Buddha understood the value of being out in nature, the, 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 um, the power that the natural world has on our minds. You know, when we go outdoors, we, we're, we, we're touched by many of the qualities that we, that we spend a lot of time developing meditation. We often become calmer, more present, more centered, more peaceful. Sense of connection, sense of connectedness. often we begin to uh, forget about ourselves because our attention is more pulled out. And as we forget about ourselves, we get more connected. We start to feel that sense of union or love or intimacy with life. That we, 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 we can glimpse that. It's often in those moments when we've really forgotten about ourselves and our mind and our worries that we get touched, we get moved, we feel the sacred, we feel the presence of something bigger than, than, than our day-to-day mind. And it's often those moments that are very transformational because we see a different level of reality. We see that there's more to life than just my wants and my needs and my desires and my likes and dislikes that all that gets really put in a different perspective when we touch something vaster. <coughs> Sometimes we touch it in the silence even though as we, listened, as we were listening, nature isn't that quiet. 
<laughs> but it's often silent. There's often a silence that pervades the sounds. You know, there's a silence in the wind. There's a silence in the sound of crickets at dusk. There's a silence in the air when the moon rises. And the silence is one of the doorways to the mystery, to the sacred. And it seems easier for us to connect to the silence within sound than when we're listening to the sounds of traffic and pop music and our neighbor's TV. That's sort of advanced practice. You go back and you do that in the city. (laughs) You realize it's all the same, but it's a little easier to get pulled into attachment and dislike. So, you know, in terms of the practice, the Buddha talked a lot about understanding the self, understanding the truth of who we are, trying to understand the mystery of that. And one of the things that happens when we're outdoors is, um, as I was saying earlier, the sense of self becomes a little less important sometimes, especially if we spend a you know, significant period of time outdoors where we get a chance for, the, for nature to rub, up, rub off on us, to wash away, to cleanse us a little bit from our usual mind chatter. So I often think we're attracted to go outdoors because uh, there's less things selfing. You know, if you hang out in a crowded room of people, like here, <laughs> there's a lot of selfing going on. There's a lot of selves here, selfing themselves and selfing you and selfing everything else. I'm here and you're there and I'm different and you're this and I'm that and, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, sense of self happening. Just what we do when we humans get together. (laughs) We make selves out of ourselves and each other. (laughs) I'm this kind of self and you're that kind of self and we're very separate and I like you and I don't like you and, you know, that's just how how the world works. When we go out into the woods or the hills or the ocean... That environment isn't doing that. You know, I was in the redwoods today, and I didn't hear the red the redwoods going. I'm like really big, like I'm like so big and old, like compared to that little squeak over there and that little. You know, that's not happening. Nature isn't selfing itself. You know, humans create the sense of self and project it and make the world into a self. We self all the time. So when we're in a natural environment, we become invited to soften that habit. It's a habit. We reinforce a sense of self through thinking. Just look at your mind and what it thinks about all day. (laughs) Me. (laughs) We create and perpetuate the sense of self by thinking about me and my life and my dramas and my issues and where I'm going and blah, blah, blah. So we go into nature, that doesn't happen so much. So it starts to soften. 
starts to get quiet if we if we if we can allow the influence of that. And then what happens when that when that starts to unfold? We start to get more quiet. We start to get more peaceful, and we start to get happier. Because thinking about ourselves all day doesn't actually make us very happy, <laughs> even though we do it a lot. <laughs> we think it's going to make us happy. We think we're thinking about th- how we can be happy. Yet we're not realizing the very instrument that we're trying to, that we're using to get there is the very thing that's causing the problem. So, as we as we um, soften that quality of selfing, we start to open. We start to feel a sense of boundary dissolve. We start to feel more open, a little bigger, perhaps, more spacious, more connected. Usually in that place, the heart opens much more readily to love, to intimacy, because we're no longer so much holding ourselves with a defensiveness, with a protectiveness, with an openness to be touched by things. So when, you know, as often people report here, when, when you see the deer or you could take a walk up in the hills and you're looking at the turkeys and the, the fawns and, and the heart just oozes with this love and care, this natural connection. Because we're a little more unguarded. Our defenses are a little softer. And these moments are also the moments that often bring the most joy when we're not so lost in ourselves, so wrapped up in ourselves, and we're more intimate with what is, whether it's listening to the rain, whether it's enjoying the grass that's growing, whether it's um, just looking up at the stars, whether it's hearing the trickling sound of a stream, listening to music, when the sense of self is quiet or absent, we feel a different quality of being. We actually connect more with our true nature. And I want to go back to the theme of joy and delight because um, a few of you touched on that. And um, we need that. We need delight and joy and happiness. We all want it. We all spend our time trying to get it, working really hard to get to be happy when it's actually our nature. It's actually the truth of who we are. But being out in nature can help access and kindle that beauty and that joy and that ability to be touched. It's one of the gifts we have, especially living where we do, you know, the, living in the Bay Area, which has phenomenal beauty and natural treasures and just a tremendous amount of open space. Um, sometimes we just need to remember to go out and take a walk. I remember when I was writing this book and I had, I had this insane deadline um, they wanted it. I'd sort of been sort of 
dragging my heels for several years, and then suddenly they wanted it in two months, and it was like a quarter done. <laughs> so I worked really hard, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours a day for months, for five, six months. And I would often work so hard I'd, forgot to, I'd forget to go outside and take a walk <laughs> into nature. <laughs> like I can see it out my window, that nature stuff looks really good out there. So, and after a certain point, I started getting sort of pretty miserable. And um, a friend asked me, he said, well, what are you doing, you know, for joy? I said, well, I don't really have much time. I'm kind of writing too much. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so anyway, I I undertook that, the practice uh, of doing something every day that brings joy, which for me is going outdoors. Not very difficult because I live right next to open space. So I began hiking every day, and it was during that period of that very intense rain last year. We had like 40 days of rain straight, which I loved. <laughs> I loved the rain. I'm English. You know, what, do you, what do you know? Um, You've got to love it, otherwise it's miserable. Um, and it uh, transformed my, my, my mood and mental state and also transformed my relationship to writing the book, actually. So I want to read another story. Um, it's by another friend of mine who um, speaks a little. Uh, this, is, this is from a chapter called Marrying Ourselves to Amazement. Marsha recounts a time when simply being attentive guided her to an experience of complete amazement. She was sitting in a forest clearing on Vancouver Island when she said, I glanced up and, and, I glanced up and saw a bald eagle soaring in the sky. The eagle would fly around in a large circle around an old cedar tree and then disappear. After seeing this for a second time, I saw this magnificent bird come to rest high on the giant cedar. She continued this pattern four or five times, and then suddenly something fell from high up in the tree. I was intrigued as I watched her scoop it up in midair and bring it back from where it fell, to a place that looked like a nest. Could I be seeing this right? It was her baby. I watched for a couple of hours as she patiently taught her young to fly. At first she would drop one baby from the tree, immediately fly underneath it, scoop it up and place it back in the nest. Each time she would let her baby fall a little longer before she provided the safety of her body. As time went on, she didn't take her young back to the nest. She just scooped them up and dropped them again and again until the babies learned to use their own wings to fly, just as our world teaches us to use our own wings. So again, I love that story, particularly because she um, mentioned as she was telling me the story of she feels like if she hadn't been present, you know, you've got to be present to win, you gotta, as they say in Vegas, if she, if she wasn't present, <laughs> she would have missed it, you know. She could have been walking along thinking about her, you know, troubles at work and problems with her relationship and why she needs a new car and... You know, and this thing would just be flying up and down. and <laughs> So, you know, we bring presence to this experience and, you know, we get, to, we get to taste the joy. It's everywhere. So I, before I, I wrap up, I feel like I, um, I often forget to talk about this piece and then I get asked questions, so I'll preempt the questions. Um, people often say, well, that's all very well and good, but 
you know, nature's really uncomfortable. You know, it's hot and it's cold in winter and it's damp and there's all these bugs and mosquitoes and you go out and there's ticks and, you know, it's unpredictable and you go for picnicking point rays and the fog comes in and it's really inconvenient and you go camping and you can't sleep and and so I um, I've been leading wilderness retreats for the last five or six years um, uh, different backpacking retreats in the Sierras and, and in the Red Rocks in Arizona and um kayaking down in Mexico, in Baja, uh, which is great suffering. Um, <laughs> and uh, up in Alaska, kayaking and different places. And um, sometimes people make the comments, oh, it sounds like, sounds like it's really cushy, like it sounds like a vacation. You go out, swan around, you meditate a little bit, and you kayak a little bit. And it all sounds very idyllic and... And uh, people forget that it's also nature. (laughs) And it's unpredictable and uncertain and um, brings us up to some of our edges, particularly around our desire for control, desire for predictability, desire for (coughs) knowing what's going to happen. You know, if you do a retreat here at Spirit Rock, we have the schedule, starts at 5.30, and it goes through to 9.30 at night, and it's boom, 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 and it never wavers. And I, um, when I make my schedule for retreats, I plan about 30 minutes in advance because it changes all the time. The wind whips up. We can't go out on the kayaks. Or it starts raining or snowing in Arizona one day. Or who knows what? Something. Something will change. And, um, and we, we get to work with how we work with difficulty. You know, one is it, nature is a wonderful teacher in so, so many different ways. Teaching us about uncertainty, unpredictability, about our lack of control, ultimate lack of control. Teaches us to be humble that we need to take great care and be very respectful of forces bigger than ourselves. It teaches us about birth and death. You can't take a walk in nature for more than ten steps without seeing birth and death. It's a wonderful reminder of change. Nothing stays the same for more than a few moments. Weather, light, sound, Temperature, wind, scent, it's forever changing. Reminds us, oh yeah, that's the truth of this world. We can forget it when we're in these buildings, you know, put this thermostat on, it stays 68 degrees, and keep the sounds out, keep the bugs out, keep everything else out. And we get to sort of believe this illusion that things don't change, that we can control our reality. You know, we can have some moderate control. So it keeps us alive, awake, when we really live with that sense of uncertainty, unknowing, 
as that phrase goes, the false sense of security is the only security there is. <laughs> so we get to learn from nature as a teacher. And for me, it's been my main teacher probably for the last 10 years. You know, I've done years of Buddhist practice in retreat centers and temples and in Asia and the West and studied with many teachers, but over the last 10 years or so, it's really been being out in nature that's been felt like a guide and a teacher. And all of the teachings of the Dharma uh, are revealed, teachings of truth. Just as in Herman Hesse's book, Siddhartha, where the monk lives by the river. The river becomes his teacher. Change. Truth. So in the book, just to close, um, I emphasize a lot, in the, uh, there's, there's many meditations in the book, there's about 35 meditations. One of the things I've learned about teaching meditation outdoors is the importance of cultivating a quality of receptivity and listening. Listening with every part of our being. That... Um, the more we can cultivate that quality of openness, of attentiveness, of receiving, rather than going out to get something through the mind. I'm going to get this experience. I'm going to hike that mountain. I'm going to bike that trail. and To go out with a sense of humility, with a sense of not knowing, the beginner's mind that I talked about. To go out with the quality of being receptive, being open because it's the receptivity that's the doorway to, uh, to receiving truth, wisdom, beauty, love, teachings. There's a poem by a Chinese poet called Li Po, goes something like, the birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So that's the gift of the exploration of nature as practice, practice of nature. So... 
there's time for a, the odd question or two or comment. Yeah. Uh, would you say taking a quiet walk by yourself in the woods is meditating? Would I say that taking a quiet walk in the woods by yourself is meditating? It depends what you're doing on the quiet walk in the woods. <laughs> so I think you know a lot comes back in Buddhist practice to intention. So if the intention is to use that quiet walk in the woods as a time to cultivate presence, cultivate connection, cultivate awareness, then absolutely that is meditation in motion. Yes. Am I a vegetarian? No. No? No. I was for about 15 years until my body said enough. <laughs>